Welcome and thank you once again for listening to Clear Bible. And we're starting a new sermon series, this time a new sermon series. Probably won't be terribly long, even though it's on three books of the Bible. But I, I want us to take a look at three often overlooked books of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. If you followed my sermons for very long, you know that I believe that everything in the Bible is there because God chose to put it there. And I believe that he can and he does use every single part of it to speak into our lives today. And every once in a while in my own personal reading, I'll kind of say something like, uh, Lord, I, I dare you to speak to me through Leviticus or whatever. And, and he always comes through. He always speaks. And so there's these three particular books of the Bible that uh, have interested me because I almost never hear a sermon preached on them. But they are part of the Word of God. You know, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And that includes these three little books of the Bible. And then, of course, Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so I want to focus on these three little books that are often overlooked because they are part of Scripture, and I do believe the Lord can and will speak to us through them. And the books are 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Jude. I've never heard a sermon preached on any one of these three books. I, uh, I think we're actually going to end up with three sermons on 2 John. I haven't looked into a 3 John and Jude yet. But I, I think there's a lot of good stuff here for us through the Scripture. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at those. We're going to start with 2 John. In case you're not familiar, I, I hope you are, but just in case you're not, we have the Apostle John, who was also the brother of James. They were the sons of Zebedee, part of Jesus' sort of trio of people core disciples. You have Peter, James, and John. John wrote John's gospel, and uh, he also wrote 1 John, the, the first letter. We call it the first letter of John, the second letter of John, and the third letter of John. And so he's, he's the author of this. I've heard a lot of sermons on this first letter of John, and in a way, you know, maybe they should all go together, but I, I would, I'm, I'm starting with 2 John, just because it's, it's not done very often, and again, I haven't even heard a sermon on it. I think it's likely that the second and third letters of John, again, you know, if, if you're British, you'd call it 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Uh, we call it 2nd and 3rd John, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John. But the, at least the latter two, the 2nd and 3rd John, were probably written late in the life of John. And one reason I think this, well, one reason is, there, there's a whole host of reasons, but one reason I think so is because he identifies himself as the elder. He says the elder to the elect lady. Now there are a lot of elders in churches in those days. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders on the island of Crete. He gives instructions to Timothy about elders. Elders were a common thing in every church. So when John says the elder to the elect lady, and the elect lady is a church or group of churches, who, who could sort of get away with being called the elder? Well, the Apostle John was the last apostle 
of Jesus to die. And so there would have been a period of time when John was the only living apostle. And there is some evidence from extra biblical letters and stuff that he might have been called the elder. Uh, and certainly he could have identified himself as that. There was no one older in the faith than John was at the end of his life. He was the last living apostle. And so if anyone could expect to write a letter and call himself the elder and expect everyone to know who that meant, that would have been John. Uh, John writes the letter, of course, to the elect lady and her children. And when we read the rest of the letter, it becomes very clear that John is not actually writing to a single person. He's writing to a group of people. Uh, in fact, in Greek, all of the, it's all written in the plural second person. In other words, in Southern language, that would be y'all. It's all written to y'all or you all. It is uh, second person plural. And so it's a group of people. It's not just a single person. Most likely that elect lady means a church or a group of house churches. So let's go ahead and read the letter. And then we'll pray, and then we will start in on this. So this is Second John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, I love all of you in the truth, and not only I, but also all who have come to know the truth because of the truth that remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth in keeping with the command we have received from the Father. So now I urge you, dear lady, not as if I were writing a new command, but one we've heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command, as you've heard it from the beginning, you must walk in love. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. Don't say welcome to him, for the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. Though I have many things to write you, I don't want to do so with paper and ink. Instead, I hope to be with you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister send you greetings. And that's the letter, but now let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and speak to us through this scripture. Let us hear your voice. Let us recognize what you are saying to us. Let us, uh, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you'd apply it to our lives, make it relevant to us. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So John's major concern, if you didn't figure it out, he has two big themes going on in these 13 verses, and it is... The theme is that he wants Jesus followers, this particular group of Jesus followers, but really from his writings, everybody, he wants Jesus followers to believe and to live in truth and in love. If you're going to summarize this letter, that's what it would be. He wants Jesus followers to believe in the truth and to live in the truth 
and to live in love. Love and truth are foundational to Christian belief. They're foundational to Christian living and behavior as well. There's, you know, some people can believe something, but they don't live that way. Love and truth are foundational to belief and also to Christian behavior. And that is because love and truth are fundamental parts of God's character as revealed in the Bible. So I want to look at this letter of 2 John in three parts. First, I want to focus on the truth and the importance of the truth. And, and we're actually going to take about two weeks to, to do that. Second, we will consider some practical things about you know, applying the truth. And third, <clears throat> excuse me, we will look at what John says about love. But even though I'm going to sort of divide it out this way, I want to make sure you understand. You, you, you just heard me read the letter. They all go together. Truth and love go hand in hand. You can't really separate them out the way that I'm doing in the sermon. I'm separating them out so that we can understand them better. But we need to remember these are all integrated. Truth and love go hand in hand. They're integrated. And John shows us the way in the very beginning of the letter, right? <clears throat> he says, I love all of you in the truth. Not only I, but also all who have come to know the truth. I love you in the truth. And all who've come to know the truth, because the truth remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, in truth and in love. So this truth and love thing goes hand in hand. Sometimes the Apostle John employs double meanings in his writings. And I think he's doing that a little bit here when he says he loves them in the truth. In the first sense, obviously, it means he truly loves them. I love you in truth. But I think he also has a, a second sense in here, and that is he means that his love for them springs from the fact that he and they are in the truth. In other words, he loves them in truth, and he loves them in the truth. They are in the truth together, and that's why he loves them, and, and according to their common faith in Jesus Christ, the truth. Truth provides the context for love. This is very important. Truth provides the context for love. Truth is where love can thrive. And that also means, on the other hand, that love can only thrive where there is truth. So let's focus on that a little bit. What is this truth that John is talking about? What is his concern about truth in this letter? A few verses from some of John's other writings can give us some insight into what he means by truth. First of all, from John's Gospel, John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the truth in this context is Jesus. Not even about Jesus, it is embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the truth. And then from John, First uh, John, sorry, first letter of John, chapter 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there the truth is something about Jesus. It's about our sin and it's about our relationship with the Lord. And then also from the book of 1 John, 1 John 5, starting at verse 10, the one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. By testimony, he's talking about the truth, right? He's talking about a truth, a teaching. 
The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. There we have that business of the truth coming up again. Because he's not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony, or the truth. God has given us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So when you put all this together by truth, John means, number one, the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So it's Jesus. It's also the teaching of Jesus and the teaching about Jesus. In other words, the New Testament shows us the truth. In the verses of, uh, in the context of verses nine, or sorry, excuse me, in, in verses nine through 11 in our verse for today, in our text for today, uh, John writes this, he explains the importance of remaining in Christ's teaching. This is part of what it means to be in the truth. Verse, verse nine, 2 John nine, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching, but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one, has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and don't say welcome to him, for the one who says welcome to him shares in his evil works. So let's make sure we understand the background to John's words here. All churches during John's lifetime and for about 200 years after John's lifetime, all churches met in homes. House church wasn't a weird thing. Some of you who listen to this are part of house churches. It wasn't weird. It was the only way they did church. And so when John says, don't receive such a person into your home, what he's really saying, the way we might need to translate it is, don't receive such a person into your church because home is where the church was. In other words, I don't think John meant you can't socialize with somebody who believes different from you. It means you don't welcome into your church, into your house church. He's not saying don't invite unbelievers over for dinner, but he is saying don't welcome people into your church if they claim to be believers, but they don't have faith in Jesus and they don't hold to his teachings. If someone comes along claiming to be in the truth, but does not remain in Christ's teaching the truth, that person cannot be included in Christian love and fellowship. Now, I, I want you to just pause and think about that for a minute. If someone comes along and claims to be a Christian, but does not live as a Christian, does not believe as a Christian, they should not be welcome in your church. I hope that shocks you a little bit, because I, I think our culture doesn't realize it. But I want to I explain. It may put some people off as well. So hang with me here and listen. In fact, it's going to take three weeks to explain this. It's going to take the whole three sermons to get there. But it sounds shocking to us, at least in, in 21st century America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, because we, we don't think of excluding anyone from church, right? We think church should be a welcoming place. Everybody should be welcome. And that's true to an extent. But this is not some isolated teaching, even though it's in the book of 2 John, which rarely gets preached on. This idea that we should exclude people from church who claim to be Christian but do not 
believe as Christians believe or do not act as Christians act, this is not just John, and this is not just this little exclusive book. This is all over the New Testament. Of course, Jesus himself starts it. <clears throat> he says to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound whatever you lose or will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and and Jesus you know says the same thing in a different way later on John 20 23 he says basically the same thing meaning if if you if you bring a church discipline to somebody here on earth something spiritual happens if it is you know done properly and within the will of God in other words, there is such a thing as church discipline. Jesus lays it out even more in Matthew chapter 18. For those of you who went through our sermon series in the book of Matthew, you may remember that. If, if your brother sins, go and talk to him about it. If he still doesn't repent, bring somebody else. Go talk to him about it. If he still doesn't repent, bring the elders of the church. There's a whole process for saying, look, you cannot be a Christian and you cannot be part of our church if you if you do not believe what we believe and you do not and and you refuse to even try to act the way Jesus commands us to act that's from Matthew but of course there are many many other verses about Christians separating themselves for those who claim to be Christians but don't follow the teachings of Jesus just a few of them if you want to look them up 2 Corinthians 6:14 and 15 that's i think the do not be yoked to to people who aren't believers. Galatians 6.1, if anyone sins, brothers, uh, you should restore him. You should go confront him with his sin and restore him, but do it gently. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15, 1 Timothy 5.20, 1 Timothy 6.3-5, Titus 3.10-11. This is a common teaching in the New Testament that when someone does not hold to true Christian doctrine. We confront them about it, and if they refuse to, to come to the truth, we say, you can't be a part of us. Or if somebody does not conform to true Christian behavior, I, and, and we're not talking about someone who just you know, sins sometimes. We're talking about someone who persists in a pattern of life and who says, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to change my ways. I believe I'm just fine the way I am. Now, again, we need to be very clear. This is about people who claim to be Christians, but don't believe what the Bible says, who claim to be Christians, but persistently and willfully disobey God's moral standards. It isn't about someone who struggles and is honest in that struggle. You know, uh, I, I have friends that, and, and I have too, in, in my own life, I've had different struggles with sin, and I'm always honest about it with at least one other close Christian brother who can, who can help me. Um, sometimes I'm honest about it with a whole bunch of people. And I know other people who struggle and they're honest about it with me. It's not about whether or not you sin. Of course you're going to sin. We'll get to that more in a minute. <clears throat> but it's about what you do with that sin and your attitude towards it. This is about people who say, it's not a sin. I know I'm you know, sleeping with so-and-so out of wedlock. You know, we're not married. But I don't care. That's not really a sin. Well, the Bible says it is. So there's a problem there. Or <clears throat> I know that it's, you know, I, I, I think the Bible is outdated. We can gossip. Gossip isn't really that big of a deal, is it? No, the Bible says gossip is a sin. And so if you take the attitude that it isn't, you are contradicting the truth. You aren't living in the truth. Paul puts it like this in uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. 
I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it, is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges the outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. <clears throat> and so again, the point here is not that people live perfectly. It's about saying, if you say you're a Christian, you need to believe what a Christian believes and you need to at least try to act like a Christian acts. And there's a process when you don't. It's a good process. It's healthy. It's not, it's not shameful. <clears throat> In the churches that I served, I know for a fact, I've, you know, I've, I, I'm serving sort of more than one church right now. Uh, and I've served others in the past, and I'm not going to specify which and when. But in general, churches that I have served, I know for a fact that we've had people who were adulterers. We've had people who were murderers, seriously. Uh, we've had drug addicts. We've had greedy people. We've had gossipers. We've had a whole host of other things. And we've even had people who don't believe in Jesus. But there are two important things about most of these folks in most of the churches that I serve and have served. Most of these folks, because we've had healthy churches, are honest about what they were in the past and about what they are now. And of course, the ones who are Christians are honest about what they were in the past and they gave up those things so that they could enter into the freedom and forgiveness and joy that Jesus offers. The people who have not given those things up or who don't believe in Jesus, they don't trust him, are often honest about that. And I'm okay with them too. They're welcome in, in any church that I'm a part of as long as they don't try to pretend to be what they aren't. In other words, if there's somebody, and, and we've had this, I've had this in, in churches before and, and I don't mind it. When somebody says, you know, uh, I love hanging out with you people and I, I love your church, but I, I'm, I don't believe this stuff. I'm not a Christian. That's not where I'm at. And I say, you know what, as long as you know that and you're being honest with yourself about it, and as long as you're honest with me and, and maybe with some others about it, I don't have a problem because then it's all clear. Nobody's confused. Everything is straightforward. That's not a problem, provided you're honest. John's big problem is with people who are pretending to be Christians, but they aren't. They don't believe like Christians. They don't act like Christians. These people are problems. And John says, don't welcome, him, don't welcome them into your church. Imagine for a minute uh, that you're an alcoholic. Just to enter into this story for a minute. You're an alcoholic. You went for a long time not wanting to admit that to yourself. You didn't want to admit you had a problem. It was really hard. Finally, you admitted it to yourself. It was painful. It was humiliating. You feel broken. You feel humbled and even humiliated at times. And then finally, but you, you didn't want to admit to anyone else either. Finally, you got up the courage to admit it to others, broken, humbled, a little bit afraid. You go to Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. The people there at AA welcome you, and you just maybe are beginning to realize that maybe you're not alone. Maybe there are other people who struggle with the same thing. Maybe there's hope. Maybe there's a better way to live, and maybe you all can help each other 
change and do something different. You're just beginning to realize this. Now you meet a guy named Joe at Alcoholics Anonymous. Joe tells you kind of off to the side confidentially, you know, I come here because my family wants me to, but it's all a load of horse manure. I'm not helpless and broken. You're not helpless and broken. We don't need some supreme being to help us out. We don't need this AA junk to fix us. We're, we're not broken. We're just fine as we are. Say, you want to grab a beer after the meeting? You're a little bit shocked. You're not quite sure what to do with this. And then the AA leader comes up and Joe immediately starts talking to him. He's all friendly. He starts talking like he's been sober for six months. And yeah, it's a, it's a struggle, but it's so worth it. In other words, Joe pretends he's there because he wants to be there. He pretends to be a part of it. He pretends to uh, buy into it when in fact he doesn't. Now, Joe could be right. It could be all a load of horse manure. It couldn't, could be that nobody there is really broken and nobody needs the help of a supreme being or anything like that. I don't think Joe's right. But even if he was right, everything that he is saying and doing is completely contrary to the principles and the purpose of AA. In other words, if Joe is right, he should go be right somewhere else because that's not what AA is about. That's, it's completely contrary to everything AA stands for. If the whole meeting was full of people like Joe, no one would get any help at all. And maybe sometimes that's why some people don't get a lot of help at church, because there's a lot of people there who don't really believe it and don't really live it. Even if it was just Joe in that AA meeting who was like there, he might derail somebody like you who are just beginning to get the help that you need and just beginning to understand. Now listen, Joe is entitled to his opinion. And if I was the AA leader in that situation, I would want Joe to be honest about where he's really at. I would want him to say, hey, I don't buy into this. So Joe's entitled to his opinion, but he's not entitled to come into the AA meeting and subvert it. He's not entitled to come in and talk to people like you and derail them when you're trying to get with the program. He's not entitled to make the meetings conform with his own opinion. And he's not entitled to come and work against everything that AA stands for. And especially he's not entitled to come to AA, which is all about honesty and tell lies. It's not going to help anyone. It's not going to help Joe for sure, but it's not going to help anyone else either. So in that situation, could you see that it's reasonable for an AA group to have some sort of standard? And if somebody like Joe gets found out for someone to come alongside him and say, Joe, you know, I don't think you belong here. We'd love to have you, but we don't, we don't want you here pretending. If you want to be honest, you can stick around. Otherwise, you know, come back when something has changed for you. If that's reasonable for an AA group, and I think it is, it should be also reasonable for a church. Now, this is not about being perfect. It is not about getting your act together before you can be part of a church, but it is about, as John says, living in truth living in truth. I'm going to quote some more from 1 John, John's first letter. I'm going to quote more extensively because this lays it out pretty well, I think. From 1 John chapter 1, verses 5, all the way to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Now, this is the message we have from him and declare to you, God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness... 
we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. God's light and we say we have fellowship with him, then we need to be in the light. And if we're not in the light, we're lying. We're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want to make this clear. The light shows what really is. If it's dark, you can't see. But if it's light, you see what's really there. In other words, walking in the light involves being honest. And John confirms that in the next verse. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. And not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. So John is not saying that we have to be perfect, but he is saying that we have to be honest. We need to be in the truth. Truth is foundational. We need to believe and admit the truth that we have sinned, and we need to go on admitting and believing that truth when we sin again. We need to believe the truth that our sin is serious, that it really messes us up in relationship to God and to other people. And we need to believe that our only hope of getting out of this serious mess that we've made is through Jesus Christ. And we need to trust that the love and the sacrifice of Jesus does, in fact, completely cleanse us. Sometimes that's the hard part for people. We get the part that we're screwed up and we're imperfect and all the rest of that. But what about the part where Jesus makes it right? We have to really believe that he is enough, that he really did make us right. We need to live in the truth of the fact that we are now forgiven people, made holy by the efforts of Jesus, not by us, but by Jesus. And when we truly trust that, that Jesus really did cleanse us from all sin, that he really does make us holy, and that when we go back to him again in confession, he continues to cleanse us, we, when we believe that we really are clean, we will find ourselves sinning less and less and growing closer to God. This is the importance of the truth. This is the foundation. Without this, there can be no love. There can be no mutual understanding. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit more next week about what it means to put this into action in our churches and, and how, to, how to approach this sort of sensitive issue of living this out in a kind and loving way, but still maintaining the importance of the truth. But for now, let's pray. Holy Spirit, again, we pray you continue to speak. We trust that you've spoken so far. Continue to speak to us. Establish us in the truth of your word. Establish us in truth more and more this week and more and more forever. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.